The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, And he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City, and it's my joy to welcome you this morning. I have an almost impossible job. I'd set it up myself. It's my fault. I didn't want to spend the next seven years in the book of Exodus. I mean, I kind of did, but uh, I chose not to, and so we're, we're trying to preach through it roughly a chapter a week, and so this 
I am not going to do justice to this entire text this morning. There's no way that I can. I'm going to kind of hit the highlights. I know you're wondering about bloody foreskins then there in there. So I'll hit that. Don't worry about it. It's coming. Uh, it's, it's got all kind of stuff going on in this passage. And interestingly enough, we have kind of a lot of stuff going on around here as well. And I'm going to pray and then I'll jump into that. And, and I'm really going to need the Lord to help me move quick this morning because I've got a lot to share. Let me pray. Father, we do welcome you. Uh, we submit ourselves to your word. We're under your word. Uh, we thank you for giving it to us, for revealing it to us, for showing us who you are, what we're like, uh, what you've done to um, fix us and to make us right with you. And so I pray this morning that you would uh, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would help us hear rightly. Uh, anything that I say that's just my own opinion or that's foolish, Father, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears this morning, that I am a sinner and I am a fallen man and I am not uh, perfect or impeccable this morning. So uh, I pray that you'd help me in my weakness. I pray that your spirit would be here, that you would, uh, above all, bring glory to yourself, shine a big spotlight on the work of Jesus, and let us see kind of um, into our own hearts this morning. Give us clarity. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Uh, let us meet the God who shows up in the burning bush this morning. That's my prayer. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we are in Exodus chapter 4. If you want to open up your Bibles there, um, we are working verse by verse through the book of Exodus. A couple years ago, we went through the book of Genesis. And we, we've been seeing over the last few weeks um, that Moses is in a place where he doesn't understand what is going on in his life, right? How often do you find yourself thinking, this is not what I had planned, God, right? This isn't the way things are supposed to be working out. Now, it's funny, a little bit, kind of, the way God's providentially works, because I've preached this sermon once before, or not this sermon, but this text once before, when I was in Omaha, and God did a work in my life, it was the first ser sermon I worked, I'm going to share a little bit about that. But it's funny how that, and during that season of my life, I was in one of those, what are you doing God type of moments. And now currently I'm kind of in one of those, a little bit, in a miniature scale, what are you doing God kind of moments. And even this morning, like uh, our worship was great this morning and that is the absolute grace of God, okay? Uh, in the middle of the night, our worship leader and his wife who's pregnant, she started having back cramps and she started throwing up and they've spent the whole night in the ER. And, uh, and so we all woke, woke up this morning to the text messages for prayer and this, and, and, and she's all right. She's been, she's home, but that means like, and, and like Rev became the worship leader, like, Hey bud, yeah, you can sing good. You want to come on over? Like, like, right. And my wife had to step in and lead some songs there. And so that was the absolute grace of God. And we have already like providentially, like half of our team is just on vacation and out this week. And so it's one of those moments where we're like, okay, maybe I just get two hours to preach. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. But no, we ended up pulling it off and thank, I thank God for it. Now, the funny thing is we kind of, Moses is in this, what are you doing kind of moment with God? And um, that's kind of where I've been like the past few weeks. I just made some really dumb mistakes and it's cost our, our family financially. I wasn't paying attention. I I was going 66 miles an hour, didn't realize, on the interstate, didn't realize there was a little uh, little uh, bump out of construction. Woo, saw the blue lights in my back. No, it can't be me. Sit down with him, do the whole thing, gives me the ticket, $465. But don't worry, two days later, I wrecked my wife's van. Uh, but don't worry, five days later, the whole drive shaft of my truck fell out from underneath my truck, and it was about 2,000 bucks. So, and oh, oh, did I mention that all of my kids are sick, or have just coming out of it? It's been one of those, like, past two weeks, where I'm like, hmm, a friend of mine said, if I didn't understand the gospel, I would think God is punishing you for something. <laughs> like, I think I've preached on that once or twice. And it's interesting, because... So many times we look at our life and we say, what are you doing, God? Like, this doesn't seem like, you know, A plus B equals C here. It doesn't seem like I'm being blessed. It doesn't seem like I'm living in your will. It doesn't seem like you're in control of all things. But that's exactly how God works in his providence. Even when we don't understand he's at work and we're going to see that today. It was interesting when I preached this text the first time about seven years ago, I was in a similar season 
Um, seven years ago, I had just about, if you look from the outside, I had just about everything going for me. I was moderately successful in ministry. I had one of the largest youth ministries in the area. Um, our debts were paid off. Um, the truck that just broke down, I just paid cash for it. Like everything was going well. I had an amazing family and kind of things were just on an upward trajectory, bigger and better. Life was good. Then God called me to plant Sacred City Church. And uh, it was in late October, seven years ago. We had about 150 people our first week. I was blown away by what, what God was doing. And some of you have heard some of this story and it's going to be a repeat for you, but many of you haven't. Then five weeks later, I went to this Acts 29 boot camp and my life took a dramatic tour. Um, interestingly enough, it kind of started with one question. Uh, a pastor sat down with me. His name was Ethan Burmeister from Core Community Church in Omaha. And he asked me one simple question. He said, what, so tell me, Justin, what's God doing in your life? And it's, what's kind of funny, you, if you want to throw a pastor like a curveball, ask him that. Because he asked that question to everybody else. And nobody ever like turns that on him and asks him. And I, in the moment, I just kind of, I'm here for a church planning assessment. So he must, he must be asking me about how my church is going. And so I tell him about the missionaries we're sending overseas. I tell him about how many people are showing up, how many people we baptize. I'm telling him all this kind of stuff about what's going on and how excited I am about the ministry. And he's just kind of like, hmm. See, I was in a scary place and I didn't even know it. I was way more excited about what God was doing through me than what God was doing in me. I was way more excited about what God was doing others in others' lives than what he was actually doing in my own heart. I was really excited about all the fruit and the evidence of grace that I saw out there, but I was completely negligent and unaware of what was going on in my own heart. In my own heart, I was in a really dark place. And I had a three-hour meeting after that with uh, some assessors from the X-29 network, uh, specifically Ethan and Bob Thune, if you know Bob. And Amanda and I made the most difficult decision of our lives. We stopped Sacred City Church that week, and we moved to the backside of the Midwestern desert, uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And it was definitely for us, it was a step down and out of the limelight. When they first called me, I was expecting I was going to go to Seattle. I was going to go to Chicago. I'm like, I'm going to get this, you know, this, you know, urban uh, understanding of how to do missions and how to do ministry. And they said, Omaha. And I said, those grain silos on 80, you mean? I'm like, oh, was not jazzed about it. We moved to a place where we had literally no friends. We had no family there. We had no income. We had no notoriety. We were just another face in the crowd, just another family, a new family in a new city, in a new church. You, so many of you know how that feels. And as God was doing work in my heart, I'm going to un unpack that a little bit. They asked me to preach on this text. And as I studied this text, this chapter gave me a spectacular picture of what God was doing in Moses. And through that gave me a, a great picture of what God was actually trying to do in my own heart. It's actually kind of scary to see the similarities of my life with this Exodus four. And my hope is that for you this morning, you're going to see some similarities in your own life as well. See, I think this is a story that God keeps on telling. It's kind of his modus operandi. It's just the way that he likes to do things. And so I think you're going to be able to pick out some pieces, I hope, of your own life story in this. See, God is a God who doesn't work the way that we think he works. He actually likes to come down and meet us where we are in unexpected ways. In the midst of our what the heck is going on feelings and thoughts. See, it's that what the heck is going on, like Sam talked about last week, that actually kind of gets us, gets our attention, right? It gets our focus off of our normal day, in, you know, rhythms of in and out that we normally do. And that's where we're going to find Moses this morning in the early parts of Exodus 4, right? Just to give us a little backstory last week, Moses, he's taking his sheep. He's been 40 years in the desert. He's taking some sheep. Uh, he looks across kind of like the valley and he sees this burning bush. He says, I'm going to go check that out. He goes over there and he begins this conversation 
with God. Now, Moses, a mere man. And before you think, oh, Moses, like if you don't, if you're not understanding who Moses, Moses already in this point in his life, he's a murderer. Okay. Moses is a disqualified man. Moses is a man who's killed someone and should be probably under the, the just judgment of God. But here we see him, this murderer, arguing with God on the backside of the desert, 40 years removed from his privileged life in Egypt. He grew up in the wealthiest home, the best education. He had this position of power that was reserved for him. And instead he sided with the Israelites. He's, he murders a guy. He gets banished out to the backside of the desert. And now he's there going 40 years with no word from God. He starts a family. He settles down. He becomes a shepherd and he tries to forget God's call on his life. Then God shows up in this burning bush and tells him, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And Moses balks. He starts backpedaling and arguing with a burning bush. Can you see this in your mind's eye? And I love this. One of my favorite things Moses said is, he's like, okay, Moses is arguing with a bush that's on fire, that's speaking. And one of his rebuttals to the God of the, the burning bush is, but I, I don't speak good. Now, I wish he could just like, I wish the bush be like, I ain't got a mouth, right? Like, I wish, the, <laughs> I wish we could have this little perspective of the bush. Like, a bush without a mouth is speaking, but you don't speak good, and that's one of your rebuttals? Like, try again. Try harder, right? So it's a pretty funny uh, scene, but it's also, you know, you know, spectacular. Like our God, Hebrews tells us, is a consuming fire, and this consuming fire is not consuming the bush, but it's speaking to Moses. And Moses will not believe it. Like that whole deliverer thing, yeah, I tried that. Remember when I saw the Egyptian beating the Israelite? I stepped in, I killed that guy, and then I went to the Israelites the next day, and they rebelled from me, they ran from me. Who made you a ruler and judge over us, they said. I tried that deliverer thing once. That's in my past. I'm done. I'm a shepherd now. But what does God say to him? Look at, look at let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. Then he's still in this back and forth with the bush, with God in the bush. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or they will not listen to my voice. Or this is like his third rebuttal. First, he says, who am I? Then he says, I don't speak, or he's about to say, I don't speak very well. He's got all these rebuttals going on. And now he says, but how are they going to believe me? What, what proof do I have? For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Verse two, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? That's the question that God asks Moses. And that, I'm going to tell you this morning, is a loaded question. See, God never does miracles just to show off. And God never asks questions that he doesn't already know the answer to. He's omniscient. He knows all things. So when God's asking Moses, what's that in your hand? He's trying to draw, uh, direct Moses' attention to what's in his hand. He's trying to teach Moses something here. God asks this question for our benefit, for Moses' benefit. He says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, of course, a staff. Now, what is that? Well, in those days, a staff was one of the most valuable things you owned. Okay? It was like your driver's license, your debit card, and your resume all rolled into one. Think about that. A staff was like a driver's license in that everyone could recognize you by your staff. No two staffs were alike. It was your seal, your proof of identity. It was representative of you and your uniqueness. It was like your debit card in that you could barter and trade with it. If you went to the market and you didn't have enough money at the time, you could say, here's my staff. I'm going to go back. I'll come back and get it later. Moses also would have used his staff to make money, shepherding livestock, which was one of the wealthiest professions in his day. And finally, Moses' staff was like his resume in that it symbolized his influence, right? When people saw that he had this staff, they would say, okay, he's a leader. 
He, he's a shepherd. This is what he uses to push and pull the sheep in the direction that they were supposed to be heading. So when God says, what's that in your hand to Moses, he isn't just talking about a stick. Oh, it's a thing I lean on, right? Like it's a piece of wood. No, God is asking Moses, what are you holding on to that is shaping your identity? Please hear me when I say that. What are you holding on to that is shaping who you are as a person? That's a four. Like if you say, what am I? And you say this, like, what is that thing? See, Moses staff represented his core functional identity as a successful shepherd. Think about this, like boxing gloves for a fighter, right? Or a computer for a programmer or maybe a gun for military personnel or a scalpel to a surgeon. This is the thing that represents what he does, what he lives for, how he makes money. It's the, one of the most important things in his life. Now I'm going to ask you this more to help us get into this story. What is that for you? Because we all have one. And I don't mean the right theological answer that we want to say, well, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of the King. I'm the, I want to be like, what do you live out of? What would you freak out on if it was taken from you? What do you get really afraid is going to fail you? Or you get really afraid is not there for you. Could be that bank account. Could be that person. What are you holding on to that is shaping your core functional identity. And I find it interesting here. You know, when God wants to show himself strong and faithful and change the life of Moses, that he uses something that's so familiar that Moses has been using for 40 years in its current capacity. We see Jesus doing this when he used a fishing net to flip the script of Peter's life with David. He used a slingshot. With the disciples, a little boy's fish and bread. And with Paul, he even used handkerchiefs. That God is into doing kind of amazing things when we hand over the things, some of the things that we're the most familiar with, the things that are most meaningful to us. We hand them over to God and God kind of flips the scripts and does amazing things with them. God says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And it's like he's saying, I know what you think it is, but let me show you what I can do with it. Let me flip the script of your life. And so God tells Moses to throw it down. Now we have to remember, he's not just talking about a stick. He's talking about really the most valuable thing that Moses owns. This represents his identity, his income, his influence. And God's saying, throw it down. Anything in our life that we are unwilling to throw at the feet of Jesus has become an idol And idolatry always leads to slavery. That's what the book of Exodus always shows us. Anytime we have a master that's not God, that's not Jesus, it leads us into slavery. Let me give you an example from my life. I've shared this many times. It's happened to me while I was in Omaha. It was by far one of the best experiences of my life. I was stuck in this weird place where I had two emotions. I was either really excited or I was really angry. And I didn't have much of a spectrum in between there. I was living less than fully human. Uh, God had created us to experience the full gamut of emotions, obviously. And I was stuck on two. And I had this meeting when I was out there um, with a couple guys to talk through some of my issues. They were going to quote unquote press in on me and kind of share the gospel with some of my wounds and some of my struggles and my idolatry. And I was led by this, I was led by them and led by the Holy Spirit to this kind of new place of clarity that really made sense of this text for me this morning. I kind of finally saw this false identity that I had built my life upon and it rocked me. Now, to make a long story short here, I grew up afraid of weakness. I felt weak. And I hated that feeling, so I learned how to act strong. At first, it was my mouth, right? When you're like 60 pounds, that's all you got. 
I developed an amazing art of seeing people's weaknesses and then verbally just destroying them or cutting them down to size. I felt weak and hated feeling weak, so I talked strong and I was good at it. Then in junior high, I had this epiphany and I found this sport of wrestling. Finally, a sport that like, they, they count your weight and like you get a guy your own size. And then I can just break a person's will to my own. This is like the best thing ever. I learned that I could outwork people. I learned that I could break their will or bend their will to mine. I learned how to feel strong, even though in my heart, I still felt incredibly weak. And I became addicted to this feeling and I became addicted to this success. I became addicted to getting my hand raised and feeling powerful. I became addicted to it. And my friends kind of labeled this identity. And many of you have heard this before as just the wrestler. Then at the age of 17, God saved me. And I've said this many times, everything kind of shifted in my life. I would lie to say that I I would be a lie to say that everything changed. Everything shifted. See the desire and the drive that I had channeled into wrestling. Now I channeled into my relationship with God. The success cycle was still continuing. And now 10 years later, I am sitting in my friend's living room crying my eyes out because God literally had me pinned to the floor and he was telling me like, I'm not going to let you go. This identity, what's in your hand, you need to throw it down at my feet and you need to walk away from it and you need to let it go. And I remember my friends kind of like being really excited, like the Lord showed me this and they go, all right, are you ready to pray? And I said, no, I'm not ready to pray. And we sat there in silence for 10 minutes, which if you're in a room with three dudes for 10 minutes and no one speaks, it feels like six days, right? They're just wanting to say something about sports. They don't know what to do with their hands. They're, it gets super awkward, right? And I felt this weight of, this is all I've known my whole life. When I walk into a room, I walk in like a wrestler. I walk in checking things out, figuring out how to you know, stay away from weakness and how to be strong and how to win and how to be, you know, win whatever, at whatever cost. And I had seen, I'd done my whole life that way. And I don't know what it would look like to go forward in a new way. I don't know what it would look like to be anything other than the wrestler. See, people, many of you didn't, if you don't wrestle, you might not understand how big freaks we are. Like, you look at my ears, they look like chew toys, and I like my ears. And other men walk up and go, I like your ears. They do, right? It's a badge of honor for a wrestler. Like, we just know, like, you've earned those ears. That's, I like that. I had a guy this week do it. That's why I said it. It's very strange, right? It's very strange. Dudes, we don't talk about very many, but we're like, Cool ears. Like it. So I felt God saying, Will you throw this wrestler down? Will you lay it at my feet? It wasn't easy. See, Augustine says in his confessions that every inordinate affection, that's everything we love in a wrong way or we love too much, is its own punishment. And I was feeling kind of the weight of that in the moment. The quote unquote wrestler had stolen precious intimacy with my wife. I could never admit when I was wrong. I could never admit weakness. I couldn't say that I'm afraid of something or I'm scared or I'm really nervous right now. The wrestler had hurt my little brothers by being unable to connect with them on an emotional level. The wrestler had isolated me from any meaningful relationships and made me as obsessed with achievement and had even in this moment I was seeing now it placed me in an opposing stance to God, my father, that I was wrestling for something he had already given me by grace. In that moment, God was asking me, will you lay it down? Will you stop wrestling? Will you willingly throw your life and your whole identity at my feet? Will you throw down your staff? And this is where we find Moses. And I just love this part of the narrative. What does Moses do? He says a staff and he said, throw it on the ground. Verse three. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. find it very interesting that God tells Moses 
to lay down your staff at my feet. And look, look what it does. It comes alive. When it, when it leaves the hand of Moses, it enters the hand of God and it comes alive and it freaks Moses out, right? Whoa, I didn't plan on that. I didn't plan on my stick becoming a snake. I didn't plan on my life going this direction and it freaks him out. And then God says, take it by the tail. Now this is interesting. Any, any shepherd knows anybody that does this knows you don't grab a snake by the tail. It's the worst thing to do. You grab a snake by the tail, unless you can do this thing. My dad taught me when I was a kid, it, it, you better be fast, but you don't grab a snake by the tail. But what happens is he grabs the snake by the tail and boom, it becomes a stick again. He says, lay it down and it will come alive. Pick it up again. It's going to die. And what we're going to see in the future is like this identity change that Moses is going through right now as God's deliverer. It's not like this one time thing. Like in my experience that happens in Omaha, it's not this one time thing and woo, the wrestler's gone. And I've laid it down on his feet. I'm never, it's going to be the same again. No, 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 no. Every time you pick it up, it's going to die. Every time you throw it down, it's going to come alive. And we see Moses later on, he's going to use that staff in his own flesh and he's going to hit the rock with it. And God's going to punish him. And God's going to say, you can't go into the promised land because you used your staff, your identity in your, in your own power and not in mine. See, God wants to control the way Moses uses his staff from now on. When it's not in your hands, it's in mine. God is saying, when Moses releases control, God takes control and it literally scares him. His life goes in a direction he didn't plan on it and it freaks him out. But you know what? This is so cool. From this point on, actually, let me, let me show you here. Where, where, where's it at? Um, I want you to go to verse 20 real quick. Verse 20 real quick. I just want you to read this. It says this. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. Listen, what's going on from this point on in the narrative, when Moses throws his staff down, he lays that identity down. And I said, God picks it up. It's called the, it's not Moses staff anymore. It's called the staff of God. Listen to how Francis Schaefer says about this. He says, in order to become an instrument of divine power, the staff of Moses had to become the rod of God. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. For all of us here, listen to this. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can be done from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. What Moses learned from the stick was that in order to be used for God's glory, he had to place his life in God's hands. To use Schaefer's expression, when we become the we of God in every aspect of our being, in every area of our lives, then God uses us for his great glory. The staff had to become, the staff of Moses had to become the rod of God or the staff of God. Can I ask you today, what is that in your hand? What is shaping your identity? What do you get your worth, your value, your meaning from? What is the source of your income? What is the source of your influence? Friends, if your identity is still in, in your control, if it's still in your hands, then you get what you got. Idolatry that leads to slavery. What do you mean, Justin, that idolatry leads to slavery? Listen, this is just an easy one. Success. I want to be successful, right? Okay, 
If that's your core functional identity, no matter what happens, you want to be successful. First off, it depends on how you define success. But then what, what do you have to sacrifice to get there? Well, most of us think financially, and so we're willing to, just like an idol, every idol demands a sacrifice. So does the idol of success. What do you have to sacrifice? You have to sacrifice your family. You have to sac- sacrifice your time. Stay late at the office. Work harder. Can't make, me, can't make the baseball game or can't do this. Possibly I got to sacrifice, got to lay down. And then what? What does the sacrifice say? More, more, more. It's never enough. Thought you'd be happy when you made this salary. You got that salary. You're still not happy. You need more. Thought you'd be happy when you got this car. Got that car. Still not happy. Need another car. Or what if it's a relationship? You get this relationship. You love this person. Oh, this is so great. This is so exciting. This gives me my meaning in my life. I know I'm loved. I know I'm accepted, this person. And then all of a sudden you start fighting. You start bickering. You're a slave. You need their love. You need their approval. You're not getting it. Become controlling, maybe even obsessive. Why? Idolatry always leads to slavery. When we fail it, then think of business, like the success thing, right? Like you're working really hard to be successful, and then you do something stupid. You make a bad deal. Does success go, I've got all the grace for you, brother? Success ridicules you. Success takes from you all your identity that you'd put in your success. It's gone. You are now unsuccessful in your own eyes, in your colleagues' eyes. It's gone. That identity that you worked so hard, maybe you went to all the right schools and you made all the right decisions. One decision can take that whole identity and just crush you. And this is why the suicidal rate is higher amongst the top echelon of people making the highest incomes in America. Because when that success, when they get it or when they lose it, When they get it and they find out it's not enough, or when they lose it, they don't have anything else to live for. Slave master. Friends, if you're still in control of your identity, your income, your influence will never become the you of God, the redeemed you. You'll never find this new identity that can't be taken from you. But God is saying, if you release control to me, I will do amazing things with your life, things you never expected, things that you never thought possible, things that are like, they might scare you, but they're a good scary, if you know what I mean. See, that night when I was in my friend's living room, after this intense encounter with the Spirit of God, I asked Jesus in prayer, okay, then who am I if I'm not the wrestler? See, I had kind of thrown this wrestler down at the feet of Jesus, and I was asking him, now what? I've been living out of this false identity. I can see the repercussions. I can see the consequences. I can see that it's messed my life up. I can see how it's literally worked its way down into everything that I do and every nook and cranny of my heart. I've never even saw it before. I'm like kind of awed in front of it. Now what? I'm asking God. And God spoke to me, and he said, you are my loved and forgiven son. And listen, when you're a preacher and you know the Bible a little bit and somebody quotes it back to you, it does kind of annoy you. Like, I, yeah, I preached on that once. Like, I know that. You probably are quoting my own words back to me. Like, and when God speaks it to you, I, I kind of felt like that, honestly. That's not a good place to be in. But uh, he said, you're my loved and forgiven son. I go, yeah, I know it. I've been preaching it for 10 years. What else am I? And he said to me this fast and God doesn't like, you know, tell me what to buy at the grocery store. Right. He doesn't like speak to me every day. And oh, there's that parking spot I reserved for you. Like turn left, Justin. Okay. Right. Right. It's very, very rare in a situation like this. But God says this when I said, who and who am I? What does that mean? What else am I? And God said, when you're that nothing else matters. And so what he's saying to me, when you know and you believe you are a loved and forgiven son from the God of the universe, the consuming fire that speaks out of a bush, why do you care if you're successful? Why do you, it, it's not even logically, it doesn't even make sense logically. Like when you're a son of God and you've been made that by grace, why does anything else matter? And I had this little burning bush moment arguing back with God and that melted me in the moment. I lost it and I, I, you guys, I said in the video, I think I, I, lost, I cried for like six months after that. 
See, that statement has been ringing in my head ever since. It was one of, if not, it was the most powerful moment I've ever personally had with Jesus. And so I ask you this morning, what's in your hand? What is your functional identity that's shaping who you are? And will you let go of it? Will you throw it at the feet of Jesus? And again, like I said, it's not just a one, it's a one-time thing that you do it the first time. And then it's every time you pick it up, you pick up that wrestler mentality, you pick up that successful mentality, you pick up that I'm the perfect mom identity. And every time you do, it leads to that slavery. It leads to that loss of freedom. But that's not all. Then God goes on to pull a little Chris Angel with Moses. He says, reach your hand in your robe. And Moses reaches, I mean, Moses is already freaked out. Like, it's funny to me, like, just the snake and the stick thing wasn't enough. Moses is like, I don't know. I got a cousin over in Jordan does something similar. Like, he really needs, like, snake, stick, snake, stick, snake, stick. And he's like, put your hand in your robe. I'm like, okay. He puts his hands in his robe, comes out leprous. Now, this was one of the most deadly and dreaded diseases in Egypt at the time. There was no cure for it. The, uh, the, uh, the Egyptians were completely afraid of it. They ostracized and pushed people away and let them, their flesh literally becomes white and they would rot and it would fall off their bones. And so it freaks everybody out, right? They, you're cursed by God. And God says, put it in, pull it out. White leprous. I imagine Moses was like, whoa. And he says, put it back in. Goes back in, comes out clean again. What's interesting is this one was never done in front of Pharaoh. This one wasn't for the Egyptians. This was just for Moses and just for the people of God because it had a unique message in it. Now, these are all, if you read this chapter, these are signs and wonders. And a wonder is just like you go, whoa, that's cool. But a sign is something that's done to point forward to something else. It has a meaning behind it. Right? And this leprous hand, clean hand, leprous hand, I can make it clean again hand, has something very specific, a message for the Israelites. This was a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying this what once was pure has been diseased by sin, but I have the power to make it clean again. I and I alone, I am is the only one who can take something that's been diseased by sin and can redeem it and renew it and make it white as snow. Pharaoh doesn't have that power. You don't have that power. I have that power. And that's a message of grace for the Israelites alone. Don't show it to Pharaoh because he's hardened his heart. Actually, what we see in this chapter, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart and there's some divine sovereignty, human responsibility working hand in hand. We're going to talk about that more later because that comes up over and over and over, but he will not get grace. He will be judged. See, God has created this ultimate story. And I think that Moses, as he's writing this, he's a brilliant storyteller. Sorry about my mic. But this next part of the story kind of freaks me out. Actually, Moses here, I'm not going to go through it because I know I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it. I, yes, I am. Sorry. You know. And he says, if they don't believe those two signs, talking about the people, then I'm going to throw water on the ground. It's going to become like blood. We're gonna, he's actually going to do that. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to hit too much of it today. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, verse 10, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now this is actually really confusing in the Hebrew. Um, and, and a lot of scholars disagree on what is he, he's, what exactly he's trying to say. But I think the most plausible interpretation is Moses is literally saying, I've been away from Egypt for 40 years and my Egyptian is gone. Like I don't, I, I used to speak it. I haven't spoke Egyptian in 40 years. My Egyptian's rusty. I don't want to go. That's basically what he's saying. Because we know he's, you know, I'm not going to get into it. Some people think he stutters or he stammers. Um, you know, I can't really find too much evidence for that. But uh, something's going on where he feels inadequate in his own ability to, to speak to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to him, I love this 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Here's where the heart of Moses comes out. I kind of like where my life is at. I tried that. I failed. I'm a murderer. I've been here in this new place for 40 years. I've got a nice house. I got a nice family. I've got a nice income. Don't mess with my stuff. God find somebody else. I'm sure you can. You've made man's mouth and all he made his too. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Now listen, when I'm hearing this and I'm reading this, I'm seeing God like kind of like, I don't want to say frustrated because none of God's plans are ever frustrated, but he's kind of like a frustrated parent arguing with your child. Go clean your room. I can't. Why? There's whatever, you know, excuse one, check that one off. Well, then I can't eat it because excuse two. And then he's going through his list of excuses. And then finally he's getting frustrated and he almost kind of like gives in to some, gives in to some of it. Fine, fine, fine. Take Aaron. Aaron has a good mouth. Will you go with Aaron? He just kind of acquiesces and just kind of gives in to some of Moses's demands. And he's, he's mad about it, but in his providence, look what happens here. He is coming out. Look, I know that he can speak well. I love it. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. This is what we, where's Aaron? Aaron is back in Egypt. Okay. Moses is in the desert and God says to him, all right, fine. Take your brother Aaron. Here he comes. What a coincidence. He's been in Egypt for 40 years. His Egyptian is still really good. He's just plucking away and cutting away every kind of objection that Moses has. And in his providence, see, this is the providence of God. We're not puppets that God just makes us do what he wants us to do. But God gets exactly what he wants done all the time. His will is never frustrated. And so even he gets angry with Moses, but he's already provided Moses' sidekick. He's already provided it. Fine, take, take Aaron. And it actually won't go the best for Moses because him and Aaron are getting into some problems later on. We'll see. But this is it's really fascinating to me. Now let's keep going. He's coming out to meet you. He'll be glad in his heart. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Then Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. Jethro said, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. We saw that two weeks ago. The Pharaoh that was trying to kill him had already died. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now this is the first time in all of scripture we ever hear people being adopted by God or God saying, these are my children. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. The lineage of Abraham, this is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, this is where things get a little freaky. This next part of the story freaks me out just a little bit. I'm pretty sure that I never heard verses 24 through 26. Uh, I've never heard anybody preach on it ever. Any preacher ever preach on it. Um, When I grew up in Sunday school, I never saw verses 24 through 26 on the flannel graph. (laughs) 
which is kind of unfortunate because I think it's the point, it's the crux of this whole chapter. See, up until now, we have got a great story with an unlikely hero. Moses, the murderer, he's gone for 40 years. God shows up in a bush, says, Moses, you're going to be my deliverer. You're going to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet. You're going to point your little staff at him, and you're going to say, let my people go. He's going to harden his heart. I'm going to obliterate the nation. You're going to walk out in freedom. This is going to be phenomenal. Moses' box goes back and forth. But you, at this point, if the story stops here, you're like, Moses, you're the man. Through all the obstacles in your life, you're now just saying, all right, God, fine, I'll obey you, I'll do it, it's going to be difficult, and I'm going to have to leave my new family here, or my new homeland here, and take my family into this tough situation, but I guess I'll do it. Moses, he's obedient even when he's struggling with faith in God. What a stud. Even when he had all these reasons and all these excuses for not obeying God, he did it anyway. Now, all of you learn from Moses and go be like Moses. Let's all leave here today and no matter how difficult things get in our life, just choose faith and choose to believe God and just move forward and everything's going to work out. That's not how the story ends. It's not how this chapter ends. As soon as Moses decides to obey God. He finally relents. Fine. Take my mouth and take Aaron's mouth and we're going to Pharaoh. Look what God does. At a lodging place. That just means like a little tent. Set up a little tent. He's on the way back to Egypt. The Lord met him, Yahweh, our God who is a consuming fire. No man can see his face and live. Meets him and sought to put him to death. This story just went kill Bill on us real quick. Moses, he's met, God has sat down with him, and he's met him, and he's convinced him, and he's going, and Moses says, I'm going, I'm going to do it. He walks, he camps, God lays him out, and is about to kill him. Then Zipporah, it's his wife, took a flint, she took out her pocket knife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. And half the commentators that we read this week said the feet is actually a euphemism for his genitals. Hmm, this is interesting. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That's God. So God let him alone. It was then said that she's a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Hmm. What the heck is going on? (laughs) Moses is finally obedient and God is about to kill him. And now we've got bloody floor skins flying around. (laughs) This is interesting because this is actually, it's become my favorite part of the story. (laughs) See, Moses is not the hero of the Exodus. God is. Evidently, Moses had decided to obey God but he still had past disobedience that he had not taken care of. He had failed to circumcise at least one of his sons and God was now going to kill him for it. Listen to what one of the commentators said. For one thing, circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people, like baptism is today a sign indicating membership in the covenant community. And thus it served as the proof of sonship in Israel. And Zipporah, his wife, seems to have understood. Furthermore, circumcision was a covenant sign that went all the way back to the patriarchs, Genesis 17. 
God made a covenant with Abraham. God said, circumcise your children. It's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign that you're my people. It's something that makes you distinct. It's meant to remind you as the foreskin is cut off, so will I cut off your, your sins from you. But if you refuse to put your faith in me and you refuse to be obedient to the covenant, you will be cut off from me. That salvation is a bloody endeavor. That we have things that we need cut out of us, removed from us. And if we don't, then we will be cut off. Just like baptism. Baptism is a sign that we are washed clean and we are buried. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are buried and washed clean. But baptism is also a sign that if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be drowned in your sins. Isn't that interesting? Now here, here, here's Moses had all these excuses why God couldn't use him. I think they're excuses that are pretty similar to us. Who am I? Think about this. I was a stud when I was in Egypt. I had power. I had position. I had wealth. I had leadership capacity and capabilities. I was the stud. Remember in my youth? Remember when I was young? I was the man. I tried to redeem my people. Now I can't. Now who am I? I'm a, I'm a shepherd on the backside of the desert. Who am I, God? I don't have position. I don't have the power. I don't have the influence anymore. Then what does he say? He says, I'm not, I don't even, not even good at speaking Egyptian anymore. It's all these excuses. Listen, Every excuse Moses gives is weakness. I'm just not that good. I'm just not that talented. I just don't have that ability. He had these reasons that he was disqualified and they all rested in his createdness and his weakness and his inability and his lack of power but it's as if in this moment, God's like, you think that's what disqualifies you? Oh, no, 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 no. Like, I can use you. What really disqualifies you is your unrepentant sin. You're going to go deliver the people of Israel, and you haven't even circumcised your son. You haven't even put the sign of the covenant on him. Something so simple that should have been done years back. You've got this disobedience following you, this sin, this rebellion following you. You think it's really in your power and in your strength what I'm about to do? You see, Moses' best obedience at its absolute best, like ours, is partial obedience. And partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience to a holy and right and just God. And so what happens here? Fascinating. Moses needed the obedience of another, his wife in this story. Praise God for God-fearing wives. Women are just naturally, I think, more intuitive than men. Can you see Moses here? I don't know what happened. I don't know if he had a heart attack. I don't know if God just got him pinned to the mat. I don't know what's going on, if he's convulsing. But there's nothing he can do about it. He's not like, get my stick. There's nothing he can do. (laughs) He's out. And Zipporah, she goes, "Mm, God's going to kill him because he's been disobedient. He hasn't led our family like he's supposed to lead our family. He hasn't been, he's going to shepherd people. He hasn't been shepherding his own son. So praise God for godly women. Give me the knife. That's what she says. <laughs> she gets down there. She takes care of it. Her obedience saves his life. Then the blood of her son, I mean the son, Lord. He's like, this is between you two, not me. <laughs> but no, the son She gets in there, she cuts it off, and then she touches Moses with it. 
the obedience of another, the blood of another, and God leaves him alone. God passes over him. God relents. And she's a theologian too. Because what does she say? This is a bridegroom of blood to me. See, this is a sign on the backside of the desert pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our new relationship with Jesus. When you lay that identity down and the obedience of another and the blood of another is counted towards you, we become a bridegroom of blood to Jesus. His shed blood at the cross of Calvary because he was cut off, we will never be. We are his bride and he is our bridegroom. He is indeed our bridegroom of blood that had happened through his death and resurrection. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ took on the form of a human man and put on human flesh. We see Zipporah, Moses' wife saying, he's a bridegroom of blood to me. And now we, when you see the body of Jesus broken for you and you see his blood shed for you and that by faith is counted towards you that you literally come under the blood. You become a bridegroom of blood, the wrath of God that's meant for you because of your sin. God passes over because he puts it on Jesus. See, today let us remember that Jesus is a bridegroom of blood for us. That your future obedience can't make up for your past obedience. That we have sin that needs to be dealt with and it can only be dealt with by putting it on Jesus. By letting Jesus die that death for us in our place and putting our faith in his resurrection that he's making all things new and he washes us clean with his blood. His righteousness is now counted as our own and we can confidently lay our false identities at his feet and just see how scary good he is to us when we relinquish control of our life to him. This is the gospel And this morning, as we come and partake of the Holy Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, remembering his body that was broken for us and his precious blood that was shed on our behalf, I am incredibly thankful this morning that when God asks us, what's that in our hand? And we throw it down. He actually fills our hand. He takes it, but he puts something else in it. When we throw down our staves, he places the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in our hands. And he gives us a whole new identity as his firstborn sons and daughters by grace. We don't deserve it. We deserve death and hell and the grave, but he gives us life and freedom and forgiveness and life everlasting. And I want you to think of that as you're receiving the sacrament this morning. Don't come, it, don't come with your, just your weaknesses. Don't come in your own strength. Come utterly dependent upon the blood of Jesus. You need the obedience of another? That's Jesus. You need the blood of another? That's Jesus. You need the life of another? That's Jesus this morning. Jesus has placed the body the blood in our hands to flip the entire script of our life. To give us an entirely new identity, one that is unshakable, an identity that cannot be taken from you, an identity of his loved and forgiven son or daughter, not because of your obedience, but because of the blood of his son has been shed and you've been touched by it.
Have you been touched? Father, you alone can do the work in the human soul that needs to be done. You are the alone of the God who speaks by fire. You alone are the Holy One. You are the alone are the ones that know all things. You are alone are the one that can lay us out. No false identity to prop us up anymore. And it feels like death, but it's true life. And I pray that you would do that painful, confusing, frustrating work in the life of your people here this morning, that they would come face to face with a living, holy God, and they know there's no way they can stand in your presence except to have the mediator, the God-man, the perfect, sinless son of God who lived the perfect life and died the death for them, and they would put their faith in him, and you would root out our idolatry you would encourage us again and again and again to lay it down, to throw it down at your feet. And we would experience the freedom like the Israelites are going to experience, greater than the Israelites are going to experience. The freedom of knowing you, of being known by you, and being loved by you. And this morning, as we all contemplate our sinfulness, contemplate our weakness, contemplate how different we are from you and unworthy to be in your presence. Let us come and eat this meal of grace and say it was provided for you. You sent your son while we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. We're loved not because we're good, not because we've cleaned ourselves up. We're loved because you love us. I pray that we would take that body, we'd take that blood, and it would be a means of new grace for us this morning. We feel your love, feel your acceptance, feel your pleasure this morning. I pray all of this in the power of your name and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.